0: You, team. And, uh, that India team is outrageous. I love those folks. Got to meet with them uh, last year for a while. Uh, I used to go on these trips. I've been to about eight or nine of them, but we can't take a pastoral team this year because of the political situation there. So just a medical team, but uh, these folks are courageous servants of the Lord, and we'll be lifting all of you up in prayer. So here's a quote uh, from the poet John Lydgate. Commonly attributed to Abraham Lincoln, but he adapted this from John Lydgate. You can please some of the people all of the time. You can please all of the people some of the time, but you can't please all of the people all of the time. Well, now that's true, isn't it? Sooner or later, you're going to disappoint people. You're not going to be able to please them. Sooner or later, you are not going to meet the expectations of some of the people. And so uh, what do we think about expectations? Some of us are, uh, just really don't care about what other people think. I think that's probably the minority. Uh, most of us are not immune to the expectations of others, and some of us are actually tyrannized by the expectations of others, especially the unrealistic expectations of others. So what do we do with all that? Listen to the, uh, a fellow by the name of Robert, or, or should I say a description of the, uh, a fellow by the name of Robert. It would have astonished most of his friends to know that in spite of Robert's amazing capacity for adapting to the ground rules, he felt alienated, different from others who he assumed really did belong. He was extraordinarily sensitive to others' opinions of him. Whenever he even suspected that someone disapproved of something he had said or done, he felt anxious and would ruminate endlessly about the episode, seeking a way to somehow explain it away or undo his perceived unfortunate comment or act. On one occasion, for instance, he made a remark to a colleague that he later thought might have sounded racist. This bothered him for days until he finally set up a meeting with his coworker to explain away what he had said as not really what he had meant. Ironically, the colleague didn't even remember Robert's comment and was somewhat mystified by his elaborate rationalization. Probably most of us can resonate with Robert to some degree, living sort of in the shadow of the expectations that people have for us and worried that we are not meeting those expectations. So what do we need? What do we need to free ourselves from the tyranny of expectations, especially the tyranny of unrealistic expectations? We need a vision of God. That's what we need. And today, we're going to get one. Let me say it again. What do we need to be freed from the tyranny of expectations? We need a vision of God. And today, we're going to get one courtesy of Exodus 17. So let's look at this, shall we? Uh, again, we've got the people of Israel now in the wilderness. They have been released from Egypt. They've passed through the Red Sea, but now they're encountering all sorts of difficulties in the wilderness. Deprivation here and there. Things aren't being provided, at least immediately. But the Lord's coming through in amazing ways. And now they continue their journey. Uh, chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water to drink for the people. There was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, "Give us water to drink." And Moses said to them, "Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord?" But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. So we saw last week that the Lord provided water for them. Uh, the waters were bitter, but he had uh, Moses throw this log into the waters and they became sweet waters and drinkable water. They had no um, food, but the Lord provided manna. And uh, so the Lord seems to be coming through for the people. But we can have some sympathy for the people as they journey to the next place. And still there's no water. These are thousands of people, children and everything. There's no, there's no water. So they are grumbling, they are complaining, and they are blaming Moses. And really, it's not Moses' problem, it's God's problem, but they can't really, they can't see God. So once again, they blame Moses for their problems. It's Moses' fault for leading us out to this place, this place once again, where there is no water. And not only do they blame Moses, grumbling against him, they test the Lord, but they accuse him of having evil motives. Why did you bring us out here? To kill us? Was that your real purpose in all of this? Getting us out of Egypt, leading us into the wilderness to get us finally to this spot so you can kill us? Well, when you're desperate, sometimes that's what you do. You blame people in that way and you accuse them of evil motives. So they find in Moses a lightning rod for their anger and their frustrations. They're not getting what they want. In fact, they're not getting what they need. And so they find in Moses a lightning rod for their frustrations. Moses then cries out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? And we can have sympathy for Moses too as well, can't we? Sort of leading all of these people and all of these people are accusing him and blaming him. And now what is Moses supposed to do? He's following the Lord. They're, they're, they've come to this place in obedience to the Lord. He cries out to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? And what does the Lord say? Pass on before them. Go in front of them so that they can see you, so that they can see you leading them. Take some of the elders with you so that they can see you. These elders can see you trusting me, depending on me, so that they too can learn to depend on me, and take with you this staff, the staff with which you struck the Nile. They've seen this staff in action before, which represents dependence on me. So take with you this staff, all of this, all of this represents dependence on the Lord, and go. Go. Go and do what? Okay, so... I got the people, I'm going before them, I got the elders, I got the staff, go and do what? Verse six, behold, this is the Lord speaking, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Again, the elders get to see this, to see how the Lord provides for the people. So. What does the Lord say? Behold, I will stand before you at the rock. So apparently he's going to see some sort of vision of the Lord. This is probably the pillar of cloud that has followed them, that has led them through the wilderness. He's going to see this manifestation of the Lord. So first of all, what he has to do is behold the Lord. This is very important because what is he also beholding? An angry mob that's on the verge of killing him. So the Lord is saying, don't look to these people who have all of these expectations for you. Instead, what you need to do is you need to look to me. Behold me, especially when you're facing this angry mob. Behold me. And then strike the rock with this staff and water will emerge. And indeed, Moses does this and water emerges. Once again, the Lord provides. You could say that the, uh, the, the situation at this point was really even more forbidding than the previous episode when they had no water, because at least they had water. It was bitter water. You couldn't drink it. But Moses was able to throw the log into it, and it was transformed. This time, all you're looking at is a rock. There's no water in that rock. Well, he strikes the rock, and water comes out. And the Lord, once again, in an, ama- in an amazing way, provides for the people. And by the way, you go forward into the New Testament and the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.4 says, this rock is a picture of Christ. As the rock was struck, Christ was struck. And what ultimately emerged from Christ was living water. So this rock becomes a fountain and Jesus is the fountain or the spring of living water. Believe in him, drink that living water and you have eternal life. Now, I think it's possible for us to have some empathy for people who have expectations for us. It's very difficult sometimes to deal with these people who have these unrealistic expectations for you and then blame you for their problems. Why is it easy to have empathy for these people? Because you do the same thing, don't you? (laughs) Don't don't we do the same thing? It's, It's easier to blame people who we can see, than God who we can't see. And uh, and many times our anger just is looking for some kind of focus and we find it in people. Really, ultimately, it's God who creates us with needs and desires and if that's the case, then it's ultimately his responsibility to meet those needs and desires and people cannot meet all of these needs and desires. Nevertheless, people expect other people to do that. So we can have some empathy because we do the same sort of thing when people have these unrealistic expectations for us. And when we become a lightning rod for their anger and their disappointment and their frustrations. It's very difficult, however, when they accuse you of evil motives. Has that ever happened to you? People look at you and say, well, you're disappointing me. You're not meeting my expectations. And not only that, I know why. That's happened to me a few times. People would accuse me of evil motives. I was doing one thing and they would say, you're doing this for this particular reason with evil intent. They didn't use the word evil, but that was the implication of it all. It's not easy to deal with when you're accused in that way. As if someone can look into my heart and discern why I do what I do. Half the time, I don't even know why I do what I do you got to be very careful about assuming other people's motives, as I said a few weeks ago. And I would say, beware of people who motivate through guilt. And some people specialize in this. They know what buttons to push. They know how to make you feel guilty and to motivate through guilt. Beware of people who approach you with a sense of urgency. I need this from you now. Really? Is that the case? Also, beware of someone who begins a sentence this way. If you really loved me, fill in the blank, you would do this. So the first thing you need to recognize in dealing with expectations that other people have for you is this. You are not God. Now, you knew that, didn't you? (laughs) You knew, you know that you're not God, but are you acting like it? Are you sort of embracing the whole idea that I have to meet everyone's needs? See, when you, when you go about meeting everyone's needs, then you don't leave room for God to meet those needs. And it's ultimately he is the one who's responsible. And cut yourself a little bit of slack for not being God, for not being able to meet those needs. You're human, you're not divine. You're not supposed to meet all those needs. And when you you stop trying to meet all of those needs, you give people an opportunity themselves then to depend on God. So now how is Moses going to remember this episode? Look at verse seven. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So he gives this place new names, Meribah and Massah, which means both of those names mean quarrel. Well, one means quarreling and the other means testing. So he remembers this episode in light of the people's unfaithfulness. They quarreled with me, they tested the Lord. I suppose he could have found another name, right? He could have found a name that recognized God's faithfulness because indeed God came through, right? In miraculous fashion, God provided this water out of the rock. Maybe he could have come up with a name like that. But for now, how is he going to remember it? He remembers it in view of the people's unfaithfulness. David says in the Psalms, many are the afflictions of the righteous. How will we remember our afflictions? Will we remember our afflictions for how people failed us? Many are the afflictions of the righteousness. Okay, so there's a big problem in Rephidim and that problem has been solved. Now another problem emerges. These two stories are related. Let's look at Exodus chapter 17, beginning at verse eight. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. So now this is a new problem. Amalek comes and attacks Israel unprovoked. So let's let's think about this for a second. So here the Lord has led these people. It's very clear at the beginning of the chapter, they are going to this place. They are going to Rephidim according to the commandment of the Lord, probably being led by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. It's according to the commandment of the Lord. And they have come to this place of tremendous difficulty. A place of deprivation, there's no water, and a place of attack, the Amalek's attack. Now, I think it's very easy to think, okay, I'm in a place of difficulty now. I, may, I, did, did I, did I, I, I shouldn't have left that place in the first place to come to this place of difficulty. There's challenges all over the place. Or did I, did I miss a signal somewhere? Did I take a wrong turn somewhere? Because I'm in this place of difficulty. But notice... They travel exactly according to the commandment of the Lord who leads them to a place of deprivation and attack. Why? So that they can learn the lessons of faith. So that they can learn to trust in the Lord in deeper ways. That's what the Lord does for us as well. He leads us into places of of immense challenges that are beyond us so that we can learn to depend on him. Now, what does Moses do? Moses has learned from the last episode. He has seen the Lord provide. He has seen that he needs to involve people. And he moves forward. And so here he stands. He says, I'm going to stand. And you can look at me. But remember, it was the Lord who stood before the people last time. He stood before Moses, he stood before the people. Moses could look to the Lord who was standing on the rock. Now Moses says, I'm going to be doing the standing. Now is Moses equating himself with God here? By no means. Why? Because he takes with him the staff, which is now clearly defined as the staff of God, which represents dependence on God. So he's going to the top of the hill in dependence on the Lord with the staff, Saying, telling other people, look at me, I'm depending on the Lord. You need to depend on the Lord. So what then is Moses going to do with the staff at the top of the hill? He's going to zap all the Amalekites with the, the rod or something like that. Last time we know that he used, the, he used the rod to strike the rock. What's he going to do with the staff this time? Let's look at verse 11. with the sword." So Moses goes to the top of the hill, and when he raises his hands, his hand with the staff in it, Israel prevails. And when his hands grow weary, that's when Israel fails. So we get the impression that what's going on here is, okay, I'm seeing the victory happening with my hand raised up when I've got the staff in it. This hand's getting tired. Okay, I'm gonna trade hands. I'm gonna put this hand over here. Now the staff's over here. I've got this one, this one's getting tired, going back and forth and and sooner or later, both hands become weary. So he took Aaron and Hur to the top of the hill. I don't know if he knew why he was taking them up there other than that he knows that he needs to involve people. Now, he can't do this all alone. He takes Aaron and her with him. Remember, he passed before the people and he took some elders with him. That's what the Lord commanded him to do so that the elders can learn, hey, we need to depend on the Lord. So now Moses takes with him two leaders, Aaron and her, and they see what's going on. And what do they do? They take a stone and use it for a chair to relieve Moses. So Moses is supported and they lift up his hand. And that's what's the result? Israel wins a crushing victory. So Moses, again, realized he needs people. He needs Joshua, he commissions Joshua, and Joshua then chooses warriors, and then the warriors are gonna fight. They're gonna recognize that they've been chosen, and they need to fight, and they need to depend on the Lord, and the Lord Moses has a role. He's at the top of the hill. Aaron and Hur have a role. Everyone has a role here. And the Israelites win a crushing victory. And by the way, this story marks a tr- transition from the Lord fighting for the people to the Lord fighting through the people. And that's what he wants to do with us. He wants to fight through us so that we are involved in all of this. So our faith is part of the whole process of what God is doing in the world. And Moses learns that he needs people. He can't do it alone. He's going to learn that again in Exodus 18, which we will look at next week. So the first thing you need to do if you are going to be free from the tyranny of expectations is to recognize that you are not God. The second thing is to depend on God. The staff here represents dependence on God. The staff appears in both halves of Exodus chapter 17, in both parts of the story. We need to involve dependence on the Lord in all parts of our story, from beginning to end, every day, depending on the Lord, trusting him, recognizing that we're failing to depend on him and coming back again to trust in him, to depend on him for everything. That's what the Israelites needed to learn. That's what Moses needed to learn. That is also what we need to learn. Dependence on the Lord. So as we depend on the Lord, we prevail. Even if it feels like you're losing, if you are Trusting the Lord and depending on the Lord, you are prevailing. And if you depend on the Lord, others will prevail as well. They'll see you depending on the Lord. They will learn also to depend on the Lord. And this has this ripple effect. Therefore, of course, depend on the Lord. G.K. Chesterton said this, we're all ordinary people. And it's the extraordinary people who know it. Do you want to be extraordinary? It's very simple. Depend on the Lord. Depend on the Lord. So what does that mean? It can mean many things, but it can involve, as it involved for Moses, crying out to the Lord. That's one of the things Moses did. What shall I do with these people, with these people? And the Lord tells him, you know, by the way, Moses, uh, lead these people. I know they're grumbling. Don't give up on them. I haven't given up on them. They're testing me. Do you see me giving up on them? No. You need them. So Moses cries out to the Lord, independence on the Lord. But sometimes we grow weary and weak. And it's hard for us in faith to depend on the Lord. And on those occasions, we need others to help us to prop up our hands, so to speak, to help us to depend on the Lord as Aaron and Hur helped Moses depend on the Lord. It's gonna happen. You're gonna grow weak. You're gonna go tired. It's gonna be hard. That's what the body of Christ is here for. We are here to pray for each other. We are here to help each other depend on the Lord. We are here to encourage one another. You can do it. You can trust the Lord. I know it's hard, but God's gonna come through in some way that you can't imagine. Trust the Lord, depend on the Lord. That's what we can do for each other. When my mother was dying of cancer, this is more than 30 years ago, I was weak and I was flagging in faith. And I was in so much pain at that point in my life that I really couldn't even pray. And other people recognized this and they prayed for me. And in the last week of my mother's life, I have never seen so many answered prayers in my life. And I didn't pray many of them. So how is Moses now gonna remember This episode, let's look at verse 14 through the end of the chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So now what's the Lord's problem with Amalek? Well, Amalek, uh, the Amalekites were descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. The Israelites were descendants of Jacob. There was some conflict, as you may know, between Jacob and Esau, and that conflict continued on through the generations. But the fuller account in Deuteronomy tells us that the Amalekites attacked the Israelites unprovoked, and they did so by picking off all of these stragglers. They were exceedingly wicked, and the Lord has discerned that they need to be blotted out. So he's gonna have war with Amalek from generation to generation, and eventually, and he does, and eventually that, that, that prophecy from the Lord comes to fruition. Why? They're exceedingly evil. Well, of course, we're all evil, right? But the Lord has mercy on some so that all might be saved. But in this case, for Amalek to continue on in this particular culture would perpetuate evil and evil upon evil upon evil, and then all you'd get is evil. And the Lord sees that and says, I'm going to put an end to that. So now how does, the Lord, how does Moses re- remember this now? He says, okay, this is the Lord. He names the altar. The Lord is my banner. Now a banner, you, probably the most familiar thing you would be with is the, you know, you see a marching band. There's a banner in front of the marching band. And on the marching band lines up behind the banner, right? And you go forward. And uh, there were military standards and color guards and everything, and the military troop would line up behind the banner. So it's very similar back in Moses' day. The Lord is my banner. I have to look to him. I have to rally behind him. I line up behind him. I can't be beholden to the wishes of the people all the time. I have to rally behind the Lord. So notice the difference in the name this time. How does Moses remember this episode? Not by the people's unfaithfulness. We have no record of the people's unfaithfulness in this episode, but by the Lord's faithfulness. The Lord is my banner. It seems that Moses has had a shift in perspective so that he can name this place, this altar, and remember this whole episode with the words, the Lord is my banner. How will we remember our afflictions? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But you know what David also says in the Psalms? The Lord delivers him out of them all. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. How will we remember our afflictions in view of how people have failed us or how the Lord has come through for us? I suggest that the latter name is better than the first name. Look for how God comes through for you as opposed to how people have failed you. Remember your afflictions in that way. So, in order to be free of the tyranny of expectations, first, recognize you're not God. Second, depend on God. Third, finally, and most importantly, get a vision of God. Get a vision of God. What did Moses do? He beheld. Moses, I'm going to the top here. I want you to behold me. That's what Moses needed to do. He needed to behold the Lord. Get a vision of the Lord. Get a vision of God. Remember the song we sang earlier in the service God, I look to you, I won't be overwhelmed. Get a vision of God. Now, Exodus 17, as it leads us into the Gospels, gives us the vision of God that we need. How so? Well, consider this. Moses went to the top of the hill at Rephidim, Moses went to the top of the hill. At Golgotha, Jesus went to the top of the hill. Who was there to give Jesus a stone for him to sit on? No one. Who was there to hold up his hands when they got weary? No one. If he looked to one side and then the other, he would not have seen Aaron and her friends eager to support him. No, he would have seen to his right and to his left two criminals who could not have helped him if they had wanted to because they were nailed to crosses. And lest anyone think... That it was the nails that held Jesus to the cross. Remember that he could have appealed to the Father, called to the Father, who would have sent more than 12 legions of angels to rescue him. It wasn't the nails that held him to the cross. What was it that held him to the cross? And uh, all his countrymen there on the scene, as Jesus was being crucified, what are they saying? They are taunting him. Even the criminals next to him are taunting him. If you are the son of God, do what? Come down from the cross. Now, Jesus, of course, would have been reminded of his time in the wilderness. Jesus succeeds in the wilderness where Israel has failed. And what happens in the wilderness when Jesus is there? He is tempted by the devil. What does the devil say? If you are the son of God, then fulfill messianic expectations. Be the kind of Messiah that the people want. Fulfill all those expectations. Do this, turn the stones into bread. Be be spectacular. People are gonna worship you, if you worship me, if you are the son of God. And so when Jesus is on the cross, And these people are taunting him. If you are the son of God, he hears the voice of Satan. Does he come down from the cross? He can, but he doesn't. He stays on the cross. And what is Jesus at this point as he's hanging on the cross? Well, I don't think he's hanging on the cross actually. But what's happening? He is a lightning rod for all of the people's bitter frustrations. He is not the Messiah that they wanted. He stays on the cross, by the way, to be the Messiah that they needed, not the Messiah they wanted. He transcends their expectations. He's not beholden to their expectations. He's hanging on the cross. Again, not quite accurate to say he's hanging on the cross. He did not live up to all of their expectations. He crushed them. They were disappointed. They were frustrated. They were angry. And now he's a lightning rod for all of their anger and all of their frustrations. The suggestion that Jesus come down from the cross was a joke to the people who made it. To Jesus, it was as real as the nails in his hands. He stayed on the cross to be the Messiah that they needed, not the Messiah that they wanted. He stayed on the cross to be the savior that we need needed, not the Savior that we wanted. And, oh, yes, and he, he, he appealed to the Father, but not for the Father to send legions of angels. No, he appealed to the Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. My goodness. What is it that kept him on the cross? It wasn't the nails. It was love. It was love even for the people who taunted him and tortured him and killed him. And yes, it was love for you because it was your sin that put him on the cross and my sin that put him on the cross. And he stayed on the cross for you, for me, for all of us. What is it that supported his body and held his hands? It was love. Look again at Exodus 17, verse 12. So his hands, Moses' hands, were steady until the going down of the sun. Now look at Luke chapter 23. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light fated. Brothers and sisters, that is the vision of God that we need, the vision of God the Son, the vision of Jesus at the top of the hill, hands lifted, held to the cross by love, steady until the sun's last light. Get that vision, get that vision in your mind, and you just might be able to love your enemies. Would you please stand, if you are able? And would you close your eyes, please? And if you feel comfortable, you might wanna lift your hands in dependence on the Lord. Heavenly Father, oh man, what a story. We have this great story in Exodus 17 that leads us right to Jesus that leads us right to the cross, which is where we should be led on so many occasions. And uh, you give us a vision. You give us a vision of Jesus. Thank you for that. Would we be able to keep that vision in our minds? And we see in this story that Jesus is the rock. On the one hand, he's this rock that becomes a fountain and living water emerges. But also, the rock is a solid foundation, a firm foundation, the rock on which we stand. We stand on Jesus. In one sense, we go to the top of the hill also, in dependence on you. And we stand on the solid rock that is Jesus. So, Lord, as we sing this last song, would you open our hearts? Would you open our minds? Would you give us that vision? Would you free us? In Jesus' name, amen. Sing, Christ is my firm foundation.